Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. When I was first thinking about doing this series on books in the Bible that we don't often hear sermons from, Lamentations came to mind right away. When I taught at a seminary, I gave my students an assignment to read portions of that book and then to pay attention to how their own bodies reacted to such hard materials. Students found it to be quite a challenging assignment, not only the reading of Lamentations, but even just the paying attention to what kind of emotions the book brought up in their own bodies. This is a hard text, and I am so glad that Dr. Mae Young is with us today to talk about what the modern church can learn from this book. Dr. Young is an associate professor of biblical studies and is the program director of biblical studies at Taylor University. She has written extensively on the subject of lament and is in the process of writing a commentary on lamentations. Since we will focus specifically on lamentations in this episode, I asked Dr. Young to introduce us to the context of the book. What do we know about who wrote the book and when and why? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. In terms of authorship, I think tradition, both Jewish and Christian, have attributed authorship to Jeremiah, the prophet. But that is not, you know, set in stone. It's not a solid fact. And even though it was accepted as in some ways until probably until the 18th century, when people started questioning, is it truly the prophet who wrote this? Some of the things that could go in favor of that, because it, it still could be the prophet Jeremiah, because there's some similar wording from, you know, the book of Jeremiah that you can find, you know, like Daughter Zion, uh, that you can find in in the book of Lamentations. But at the same time, you know, some of the the theology there is a little bit different. I mean, in the book of Jeremiah, he's predicting, you know, the fall of Jerusalem. And here it's almost like a shock in, in the book of Lamentations. In Lamenta- in the book of Jeremiah, it's really attributing to the sin. Even though sin is talked about in Lamentations, that's not the main reason. So you have some of those kind of things that kind of have a, a sort of a disconnect to what the message or the perhaps, you know, the sentiment of, of the prophet himself and what the perspective you find in the book of Lamentations. Probably one of the the things that contributed to people thinking that it was the prophet Jeremiah was there's a superscription in the Septuagint that actually says that, you know, after, you know, the the fall of Jerusalem and uh, everything that happened, that that you have the prophet Jeremiah sitting there lamenting over the city and then writing these words. So you have that superscription coming. But again, this came not necessarily from the Masoretic text that came from, you know, the Septuagint. And so you have other, like the Vulgate that follows suit, you know, the Latin, the Latin translation, and then some of the Targums that actually took on that superscription. So that's probably what kind of 
you know, you know, in some ways solidified in some of the minds of people that it was Jeremiah who was writing it. However, in the original Masoretic text, as you know, the position of the book of Lamentations does not follow Jeremiah, but actually is in the Megillot, which is the festival scrolls. So even that is like, you know, it's not necessarily tying that authorship necessarily to Jeremiah, but as part of, you know, a, a different corpus of, you know, the Megillot scrolls and being a part of that as as being used in that way. I find that position of like where the scroll falls in a canon, in a organization of texts to be really fascinating because if I'm correct, Lamentations follows Ruth. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I, there's different versions of that too. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, two, and but... just it's it it puts focus almost on the actual lament, and when it follows Jeremiah, well, at least in my encountering of the text, it followed Jeremiah, and I was like, oh, this is Jeremiah lamenting the city. Let's move on to when people come back from exile, and it yes. was a little bit more dismissive. And I feel yes. like when it's with the writings, there's something mm -hmm. about this is a thing. Learn yes. this and sit yes. with this as yes. the genre that it is. And it it yes. forces me to read it differently. Yes. And to realize it's part of use, you know, being used in the festivals. It's the festival school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so yeah, so it's, it has it's, it also takes on sort of almost like a different kind of function in your mind too, when you think about that grouping. So I, I guess, you know. Jeremiah still could be an author, you know, the author, or it could be some, an anonymous person, or it could be, you know, several people who have, you know, written and then brought together as a whole. So we don't necessarily know completely um, as to who the author is. But in terms of context of when it was written, it's probably a lot, you know, more solid that it was written uh, around the time of uh, the fall of Jerusalem from the Babylonians in 586, 587 BC, perhaps not during the fall itself, but perhaps maybe, you know, scholars would conjecture even up to like 50 years after it and kind of reflecting on it, on some of the circumstances that came in there. Probably one of the strongest cases for the dating of the book to that time is what I read from Dobbs Alsop on, you know, the kind of Hebrew that was used there, you know, uh, late biblical Hebrew, standard biblical Hebrew, kind of that mixture here and kind of dating it probably to that time to be best fitting for that to see it. So, so even the reason why is, you know, even though it could be, you know, very plausible that it's the, the fall of, of, you know, Jerusalem at that time, there's nothing explicitly historical in the book itself that points to that. But you have things that you have the famine, you have imagery of fire, you have Jerusalem weeping, you have, you know, these things, but there's nothing saying, you know, uh, this is the Babylonians coming and, you know, this is the fall, you know, but, but there's, you know, definitely a lot of hints to what happened during that time. And I think that leads us really nicely into this idea of what are things we need to know to read Lamentations well. And one of the things would be, as you said, there's there's no historical narrative and it. it's a whole different thing. You have to have a whole different mindset yes. to come to this rich Hebrew poetry, thinking about poetry the way 
the Israelites would have thought about Hebrew poetry. So how would you describe like, this is what you need to know to read Lamentations well? I think, you know, even in my own study of that, one of the things that was very helpful for me was recognizing the different voices that were present in there. So there's like, there's poetic devices at play. So again, this is a poet, poetic book. You have a very obvious poetic structure in the first four chapters. So recognizing that it's an acrostic, you know, in all four chapters. And that is very different from other books in scripture as well that are more narrative. And so that signaling right there that you're looking at poetic form and then lines itself, like in jammed lines and parallel lines that are present, uh, recognizing that, but also imagery and voices and taking into account some of the things that are happening and recognizing too that this is also spoken you know, in chapter one, you have the narrator and you have Lady Zion and they're sort of, you know, you know, one is spoken with, you know, third person forms. The other is spoken with first per- person forms, you know, and second person directing to, to Yahweh. And so recognizing that, you know, there's different voices there and one person is just describing what's happening and the other person is actually living it out, <laughs> you know, and how do you reconcile that? And how do you see that? And then how do you look at what she's saying, who she's directing it to, her suffering, and how she's characterized by the narrator. And then even in the second chapter, recognizing who is it talking about, you know, it's talking about the narrator is talking about now God as the enemy and the imagery that's there. And so some of the things like how these things are weaved throughout the book, the imagery, and also there's this like reversal that keeps coming up, like, you know, she was once, you know, a princess and now she's like a widow. She was once, you know, exalted and now she's weeping or, you know, there's kind of, you know, now my lovers have become my enemies. God has become enemy. So this reversal that she's living out, you know, everything that she's, she was living is now changed and that reversal and dealing with that. And so kind of living out that situation and even this grappling in chapter three between hope and also, you know, wrestling with the wrath of God and all the things that come forward in there too. And so I think a lot of it has to deal with, you know, recognizing some of the voices, recognizing some of the imagery, recognizing some of the experiences, recognizing, you know, what is she grappling with? Kind of like when we go through pain, there's just a bunch of stuff that we're going through and a lot of emotions and a lot of, you know, sometimes if if our pain is caused by sin, we acknowledge that sin, but then that doesn't minimize the pain that we're going through. And that's kind of what you see in in this book is she acknowledges that she has sinned and she has rebelled. But at the same time, and the people do acknowledge that, but at the same time, they're just saying, but this is a lot of suffering here, God, <laughs> you know, and so dealing with all of that emotion in there. And then what does it mean to be a witness for someone who is going through the pain? How do you stand alongside someone who is dealing with that? Because it's not all about someone who's just gone through that, but how do you stand alongside that? How do you come together as a community? Because chapter five is all about, you know, coming together as a community and them acknowledging, you know, before God, what has happened and, and still crying out to God as a community. So all of, I think, you know, recognizing that we're dealing with, you know, not necessarily a narrative, but more poetry 
in that sense and grappling with a lot of different things that come out from that that could help us in, in giving us a different facet of how to deal with suffering, a different facet of how to be a, a witness for someone else in pain, uh, a facet of, you know, recognizing the sovereignty of God, but also recognizing that, you know, that even that we can call out to him in our pain as well in that too. And, and turning and asking for God to bring about recompense. Um, and that was something that's very present in the book as well. So there's just so many different themes and so many different imagery, different voices. My own work on the book actually was trying to see if there was anything in correlating the structure of the book and the imagery and their correlation and the, and the message of the book. And what I felt was that, you know, as the book progressed and as more voices came in, that chapter five had to be a completely different structure because it was like sort of a breakdown of what we know when we're lamenting and our reality to hear other voices, to make room for a different structure altogether to give greater hope. So there's sort of a progression in there too. And by a different structure in five, you're referring to the fact that it's not written like an acrostic, like the previous four chapters are. Yeah, Yeah. So there's no acrostic. It's actually just single lines as well. So there's also like, if it's, um, in chapters one, two, and three, it's like triple lines per stanza. In chapter four, it's a double line stanza. And then in that last one is just single line. So it's altogether different. And it's also a communal lament. There's no different voices that come. It's just one voice of the community together. And then, you know, um, so it's just chapter five actually is just very, very different from the previous four chapters altogether. Although even though structurally and all these things, it's different a lot of the wording is actually pulled from the first four chapters. So it's not completely different. So it's still taking on similar themes that you can find in the first four chapters, but also saying, so it's kind of wrestling with why is there a difference here in this last chapter? And why is it a communal voice at this time, but still similar themes that come from the first four chapters as well? Hmm. I don't know if I'm, in my mind, it registered that when I think of lamentations, I think of a personal lament. And I don't think it registered that there's a moment in the book where it is a communal lament. And I I like the wording that you use, which had something more to do with making space for the witness of someone else going through lament. And what would lamentations tell us about being the witness of someone else's pain as opposed to voicing out our own pain? So this is where I think maybe earlier chapters, like the narrator witnessing what Lady Zion is going through and talking about it and saying some of the things that are happening to her. And then if she herself gives voice to some of that, but then all of that actually coming to the end where they're standing together as a community as well. So it's not no longer someone just witnessing to someone else, but standing alongside them and saying, you know, we're in this together in that way too. Hmm. You talked to and mentioned the multitude of types of hurt and emotion present in the book. And it does sometimes strike me as a struggle of voices trying to get recognized and heard. So it's this mixture sure. of emotions, yeah. like needing, yeah. buying for a, yeah. a voice. And I think that too can, bringing it back to how do we use a book like this in our church communities, I think that kind of 
struggle between what difficult voice gets to speak what it is feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, How can we as a church community, maybe not in the academic world, but in our church communities, in regular life, learn from a book like Lamentations about how to give voice or how to bear witness for someone else? Yeah, I think probably one of the most basic things is like hearkening back to what we said earlier, not to be afraid of people expressing their emotions when they're going through difficulty and not wanting to shut it down right away. (laughs) You know, I feel like we just don't know, or even like giving no room for that, like giving no space for someone who's really grappling with these things. You know, she's, in in the book of lamentations you have you know lady zion just you know weeping over her children like weeping over you know and coming with some graphic imagery of you know compassionate women boiling their children you know like dealing with these crazy things you know so recognizing that sometimes people are dealing with some very difficult circumstances and allowing them to talk allowing them to deal with that pain allowing them to you know, pray to the Lord about these things and to be honest about that too, and not, and allowing, giving them space for that, giving them room to, you know, when things are sort of, you know, a disconnect in their own mind, how could this happen? I mean, for the Jewish people, this was sort of something like, how could this happen? How could, this is almost like unheard of. And like, they just didn't know, it was almost like shocking for them. Like, how could God do this? Or how could he abandon us? Or how could, you know, and just giving that room and coming, but they didn't give up on God. They were actually coming to God, still acknowledging that he is God, that he's still on the throne, but also recognizing too, that, you know, God, this, you know, why have you done this to us at the same time? So allowing space for that. So if there was a pastor who is listening to this podcast and they feel very ambitious about going forth and preaching from Lamentations, is there a passage that you would say, I mean, how would you direct them to grapple with these tricky chapters and trying to come up with a sermon? Would you say, aim for chapter two, <laughs> or is chapter five the easier one to head towards? Or would you say, just do an overview of the whole book? Well, I would say, okay, maybe an overview, but I would think chapter one, I think chapter one is probably in terms of structure, it's probably the easiest to follow. I mean, there is like, you know, a back and forth in the narrator to Jerusalem, you can you could tell when she's talking to the people on the streets, when she's talking to Yahweh, when the narrator's talking about the reversal of what's her situation. And yet you can also see at the very end of the book where she's asking God to reverse the situation. So I think, you know, chapter one is probably, I would say, the easiest to be able to to preach from, kind of talking about, you know. This is how she, you know, the narrator talk, talks about how she sits alone, you know, and then her situation. And sometimes I would liken it to like, you know, like a movie scene. It opens up and you have this movie scene of this woman weeping, sitting alone. And then and then it like zeroes in, getting closer to the cheeks, the tears on her cheeks. And then the narrator talks about what happened to her. And then she starts talking about her sorrow. And then she turns to Yahweh. So I think there's, you can almost even see it like that. Like, let's, let's look into the the life of this suffering 
woman and seeing, but then at the same time, how is she dealing with the suffering, even though there is sin involved, but at the same time, how she's still coming in faith before Yahweh that she hasn't given up hope altogether. Because I, I think that's a very slim line that sometimes people don't recognize is like when people are going through intense suffering, it's easy just to walk away yeah. from God altogether. But here she is sitting through some very emotional, you know, difficulty, but she's still turning to Yahweh and she's still turning to people. There's a desperation, but her desperation has not caused her to walk away, but she's still coming in faith and asking for God to rectify the situation. And that's huge. That's huge. And and I think we can learn a lot from that too for ourselves. Is that turning to God true, even if, I don't know if it's her voice or someone else who then within the book calls God the enemy or like the other enemies? Is it still a turning to and evaluating the situation? Is it still a not wanting God to be that, but he is, if he feels like that? Yes. Yeah. I think so when it, that's more than like chapter two, when it's like calling him like an enemy. Um, and that's more of the narrator talking about what the narrator is kind of saying. He's acted like an enemy because he's basically torn down all the walls of, you know, the city and done all this destructive work. And so he's kind of describing what has happened. And and at the same time, you also have later on in the book that, you know, Lady Jerusalem still turns to God. So so even though it's almost talking about all these things have happened but here she's still turning. So it's still a turning. And then, and then she's still turning like, why, why have, why have you done this? We have sinned, but why have these things have happened too? So there's still a turning in the midst of all that. And so it's, it's kind of also reconciling, you know, some of the pain and some of the things that are happening, but still turning to God in the midst of that. So that doesn't like take away from her coming to God, even mm. in the book. Is your commentary isn't out yet, right? Are you currently in the process of writing the commentary? Yeah, so that won't come out for a little bit, actually. Um, that's going to come out in 2028, I believe. And it's part of the pillar, pillar series for Lamentations. Uh, cur- currently, I'm working on just more of a book on uh, recovering biblical lament. So that's what I'm working with. That'll be coming out with um, IVP uh, hopefully soon. That's been what I've been working on. So. Great. It is an area that our church, at least the Western church, needs help, needs guidance in how to lament well. And I just really am struck by the imagery you were talking about earlier about witnessing to other people's lament as well. We don't talk about either of those roles yeah. very well. And so I'm really glad you are. <laughs> and oh. <laughs> I I, I think we as a church body need help doing that. So thank you even for your guidance in in that. Sure. It's been very eye-opening for me too, just even delving into the area of lament and how the Bible has been instructive in many ways as well that we don't necessarily see. Yeah. When you run across people now who, whether it's a student or a colleague or someone in church who is going through a really awful phase in life or like your past self, how do you use these uh, biblical passages of lament to encourage them or give them a grippy substance to hold on to in such times? I would actually, you know, remind them that, you know, 
that the Psalms do have these examples of lament that we can pray, you know, and kind of like what you were saying too, like when you don't have the words to pray, sometimes the Psalms give us those words that we need at those moments. But at the same time, it's, I would remind them that this is not a quick fix. You know, um, I think we sometimes want to see lament as a quick fix, almost, you know, like this is what's going to get us out and give me the lament formula so that I lament a shorter amount of time. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's really (laughs) what I remind them that that's not what lament is about. You know, lament is about, you know, turning to God. And sometimes some people, you know, have taken years to get to the place where they're at. And now they're finally dealing with these painful things and they expect to get out of it in a month (laughs) or two, you know, and sometimes we don't realize that it's going to take a while and it's okay, but we're walking through with the Lord. And it's like being honest and having that relationship, having an honest, real relationship deep in our walk and then knowing God even deeper to give us confidence and healing in our faith and in our, you know, just the things that we need and, and sometimes, and and bringing us to places of hope. Like, I really truly believe that lament, true lament will bring us to greater hope because it's, it's drawing our eyes to the Lord. It's helping us to be real, helping us to work in that relationship with God, recognizing who he is in the midst of our circumstances. But this doesn't necessarily happen overnight. I'm not saying that it can't happen overnight, but for the most part, how do we walk in that, you know, and, and trust God to bring that wholeness. It's kind of like, we know how to go see a doctor if we've broken our arm and then we put a cast on, but we're still walking around with a cast until the healing takes place. It's, there's still that nuisance of every day. Do you take a shower? Do you have to, you know, keep it from getting wet? There's also, you know, there's all these things that are tiring, you know, but that doesn't mean that healing isn't going on in that arm with that cast, you know, but you're still walking in that and it feels raw. It feels difficult. It's, it's an inconvenient, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you're not moving towards healing at the same time. And, you know, and so recognizing that on a, on a physical level, we can also recognize that on a spiritual level as we're doing that hard work, coming before God, you know, being honest, praying, trusting, you know, taking on his promises, dealing with these things that, that he's doing a work in our heart. He's doing a work in our lives, in our spirit, you know, in our soul that it's going to take time. We may not see it right now, but he's doing what we need and it's going to come about, but it's not going to be like overnight. That was beautiful. And I am very grateful for the way that you crafted some time this afternoon for us to have this conversation. It's really a joy and I really appreciate it. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your interest in my work as well. Thank you for hanging in as we explored some challenging subjects. In both the interview and during the editing process, I was challenged once more to lean into the biblical wisdom of lament. 
I honestly hate it. I'm not really part of a church tradition that was birthed out of trauma and accustomed to crying out to God in lament. For that, I need to sit at the feet of the wisdom of the African-American church. But really, I am among those who want a formula for lamenting well so that the process is as short as possible. And in this interview, I was really appreciative of the way that Dr. Young talked about being a witness to other people's pain. We do have a lot to learn, don't we? This week, I am pleased to thank David and Julie Logman and Christine So for making this conversation about Lamentations possible. They are part of the Patreon team who has stepped up and is contributing to making this project sustainable. I cannot do this without my team. By the way, I am getting ready to go back to Israel, so if you've been thinking about joining the team, now is a good time, because then you can receive a postcard or spices from Israel. If you are interested, there is a link in the episode notes. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is good to be with you here around the podcast table. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 